Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Tom, thanks for taking some time to join me in the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. That's a pleasure, Alan. Uh, it's it's funny how this conversation came to be. I think I was chatting to my co-host on the show and uh, Nanook got brought up and your name got brought up and then um, the stars aligned and we were able to have this chat. Um, you're dialing in from, from Brisbane today. I'm in Melbourne. It's recording remote, but it's recorded in video. If you are interested in watching the video, I know a lot of our uh, listeners do prefer video, so jump onto the Brass YouTube channel and you'll be able to watch. Mate, uh, we usually start off with a bit of a an icebreaker, a bit of tongue-in-cheek type questions. And um, normally when I ask this question, the person that I ask hasn't achieved probably like a, a world standing in this in a skill or something like this, but you have. Um, so I'm going to ask the question, but I'm going to ask maybe not to mention sailing, maybe <laughs> uh, one thing that you expertise in or you know some skill or I don't know maybe it's a hobby you're working on which you want to be better at just one thing that you wish you could do better there's lots of things I wish I could do better um, I mean from from the, the list that you threw out uh, I wish I could remember things better I mean that I, I have a terrible memory for names and uh, I yeah, don't have great recall of information which might surprise a lot of people um, you know, I'm an engineer by training and generally sort of do well at things where I can get a holistic understanding of how things work. But, um, uh, yeah, often that gets misinterpreted as a good memory for, for everything and I, 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 you know, that would be a great skill to have. Um, you know, things that don't relate so much to the investment. I wish I could, you know, play music and entertain and I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day watching someone performing and thinking, you know, just that'd be a wonderful skill that, to have, mm. but, but way beyond my skill set. Mm. Well, I think uh, as an engineer, we kind of, we, we focus on the science and that framework, which you just mentioned there for analysing problems and, and we can make do. Uh, but then looking at the creative side, it's probably a little bit, for a lot of us, it's a little bit later in life where we think, damn, I wish I did that. I wish I learned to play the piano or do something, like a, some type of creative skill. Uh, my, second, my second question is actually a two-parter. 
And it's what's the best investing book you've read? And then also what's the worst? I think that might bring up some interesting ideas. Yeah, look, I, I find it very hard to go past Buffett's shareholder letters, which was really the first investing book. It's not, a, I mean, not necessarily a book. It's published as a, uh, you know, as a, as a compendium of those those letters if people want to get hold of it. But that's a remarkable sort of resource for people who are um, new to investing and want to um, sort of understand at a very deep level what it's all about. But 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 you know the, the information is conveyed in such a beautifully elegant way. Um, so that I mean that was the first sort of in, investing text I read, and yeah, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic resource. Um, I, I you know the one that sort of stands out to me as being really interesting um, was a book called The Misbehaviour of Markets by Benoit Mandelbrot, who's the guy famous for work in fractals um, hmm. that talks about risk in investment markets um, uh, in a way that's quite different from conventional sort of normal statistical distributions. And um, okay. it's not, you know, it's by no means an answer to how people should think about risk in markets, but it's a very interesting book that sort of confronts some of the real shortcomings in um, in mainstream investment thinking mm -hmm. uh yeah look i don't really have a worst investment book to point to um i mean as a general thought um i think certainly the way that we invest it's very important to um consider how other people think about things and if you're reading investment mm -hmm. books you know a wide range of investment books you'll get a wide range of different views and that's um you know, reflecting the wide range of different views of people participating in equity markets. So I don't think there's any downside. At the end of the day, you've got to, I think you've got to form your own um, set of views and your own way of thinking about things and there's no real right or wrong answers about how to invest. Mm. Uh, there's some, you know, there's some great rules of thumb that have been proven by, you know, successful investors over time, but um, there are lots of ways of, participating successfully in investment markets, there's not a right way or a wrong way. Mm. No, I like that. Very diplomatic as well, mate. Um, I, I probably, it's it's hard to pick up a book and say it's the worst one that we've come across. Um, one day someone will answer it and I'll, I'll raise a few eyebrows, I'm sure. Um, another one which is probably more related to the investment process that you follow, which is, I was just, I, I'm interested to know if there's like a global standard for a company that reports like triple bottom line, you know, it's talking about all the right things and it's presenting the information in a really helpful and relevant way for investors. As if there's like a, a company that you've come across when you're reading the annual reports or 10Ks or whatever, and you think, well, this is a this is an exemplar of how to convey messages to all stakeholders across the business. Um I mean, I don't. I got the question in advance, and I still don't have a good answer. I, I can't think of a company um, that does represent that at the moment, um, and that's partly because we don't. I mean, in what we do, um, try to invest in companies who are delivering a triple bottom line as the sort of criteria for investing, um, but but. Yeah, increasingly companies around the world are starting to 
um, address social and environmental outcomes um, of their operations. Uh, and there's, yeah, I mean, there's companies like Microsoft um, who are um, providing extremely comprehensive reporting these days and not just doing that but taking active steps to address social and environmental impact and not just in, you know, real time today and for the future but even addressing environmental impacts fr from the past. Um, and so I think there's lots of examples of companies that are adopting very um, encouraging strategies around that and it's it's what the companies are doing more so than how they're reporting that, that's important. Mm. I think that's um, – I think there uh, we're starting to see – obviously the tech companies have been able to lead from the front capital light business models and they're pretty forward thinking. Um, a company here in Australia or, say, New Zealand is uh, – I've talked about a lot on the show, which is Zero have adopted a new reporting framework and it's really interesting to see how they disclose some of those softer metrics um, and how they're evolving over time. And I think I think it's a good thing. I think we're getting a more holistic picture of, of business and industries. And uh, even like you mentioned, Microsoft, uh, Amazon to an extent, <clears throat> but also Alphabet has made a pretty bold stance on uh, how it conveys messages and where it wants to go from an environmental perspective, at least. Um, one one final question before we get into a bit more about you is I, I think like the, the kind of the active emission in investing is actually a really interesting one. So basically like what investment did you not make throughout your career and what have you learned from not making that investment? Uh, look, if, I mean, uh, it's, I don't know if it's a tongue-in-cheek, response to you but you know if I'd left school at 16 and started um, investing in coastal property in Victoria um, <laughs> I'd have succeeded you know as an investor and financially in a way that you know orders of magnitude more than I have having worked pretty hard at my career for for 20 or 30 years um, and yeah sometimes I wonder if you know that was the great missed opportunity um, and I think the the lesson from that is that um, uh, uh, you know a lot of what proved to be very good investments over time, um, in hindsight, appear to be very obvious things um, and were obvious things at, at the time. Um, and I don't think. Um, you should sort of dismiss investments on the basis that that they're obvious, um, you know, because, uh, you know, whilst there's a risk that if something's obvious, everyone's onto it and it's priced properly by the market, um, in a lot of cases that's not the case. It's, you know, that there are a set of long-term trends that are very favourable for a particular asset or asset class and, um, you know, you're, you're right. To position into that, um, mm. yeah, and look, I can think of you know dozens of you know opportunities in the listed markets that we missed. It's sort of part and parcel of what we do that you're always going to miss a lot of opportunities, um, and there are different reasons for for, for, for you know for different ones. A at the end of the day, most of it's about having confidence to act 
and a willingness to, you know, be wrong within your portfolio or an appetite for being wrong or being wrong for a while before you prove right. Um, that, that That's the reason for not acting on them. Mm. That's actually a really... I did not expect you to say <laughs> uh, property and I did not expect you to uh, identify Victorian coastal property. But uh, yeah, I grew up, I mean, I grew up in in Victoria and, mm. you know, as a kid in the late 70s and early 80s, if you went to coastal towns in Victoria, you know, you could buy bits of land today that are worth hundreds of times what they are, what they were then. And it wasn't, you know, such a stretch to think that, you know, you, you were going to see a huge amount of development over a long period of time in those those sorts of areas and a lot of people have done extraordinarily well out of that um, good mm-hmm. on them yeah good on them and i i think we we'll get to this throughout the conversation i think it'll be a recurring theme is like the complexity of investing and how it can be simplified um i have shared similar sentiments growing up towards the Yarra valley um, and seeing that development happen as well. So um, let's let's focus, let's zoom in on you a bit, mate. So people may know who you are that listen to the show, but one thing I'm interested in, one thing that I like to understand from investors and professional investors is basically the threads of investing through their life and maybe where that journey started. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, you grew up in Victoria. Was business, was investing, was you know, all of this type of thing, ec- uh, economics, was that part of the your childhood? Did you have anyone mentoring you or guiding you down this path? Um, unusually, no. I mean, I didn't um, engage in any serious way with investing in investment markets um, uh, until I was in my, um, in my mid-20s. Uh, and, yeah, I... Sort of grew up in a family with two parents who were both architects. Um, you know, my grandfather had been a mining engineer and um, was a very successful business leader um, within the Australian mining community. Um, but but no, my sort of family background didn't provide me a lot of exposure to investment markets, and I um, studied engineer, mechanical engineering at university, and my initial sort of professional career was in engineering and industrial consulting. Um, And it was through a series of sort of, um, you know, steps in my career that, you know, weren't planned from an early stage that I ended up in investment, deliberately in in the investment industry more broadly and then progressively moved towards what what I'm doing now. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I, I, sorry, go on. I was going to say, so um, one thing I didn't know is that both you and your wife, if I'm not mistaken, are Olympic gold medalists. Is that correct? My, my wife's an Olympian. She was a Olympian. two-time world champion in um, in rowing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. And so uh, this, I, I guess, I don't know a lot of this backstory, Tom, even though I've done a fair bit of prep for the, the conversation today. Um so I did know I did know that you got first class honors from Melbourne Uni in engineering um, before you transitioned across to investing a few years later. But where did like where did sport fit into that as you know throughout your childhood? Was that kind of all consuming? I'm guessing it was. And did you like is that did that come first or did the interest in engineering come first? Uh, look, uh, I mean I. I grew up in an environment, you know, 
with engineers and sort of practical hands-on people around me um, and I always have had and still do have a um, a great curiosity to understand how things work. You know, it's always been in my, um, you know, thing to pull, pull things apart to understand how they work. Um, yeah, and look, I, I mean, I went through school in in Victoria. I was very strong in maths and science, physics and chemistry and things like that. And it was a pretty natural progression for me to move into engineering where you know, others in my family had um, ha- had done before me. Uh, and I never really thought beyond doing that. I, it was something that I had, a, I guess, an innate skill set for and was good at many of the aspects of and that was an easy, um, easy sort of choice. Uh, the sailing was in parallel with that, so I you know, learned to sail in my early teens and got involved with competitive sailing on Albert Park Lake and involved with the junior sailing program in Victoria and sort of over time, I, I, I wasn't, a, wasn't by any stretch a particularly talented young sailor, but I really enjoyed, um, enjoyed it and some of my academic skills could be applied in that sporting environment in terms of mm-hmm. understanding, um, you know, sails and, uh, you know, the, the, the wind and how, how the sport worked. And I really enjoyed that. I, I, you know, and as I put more time into it, I got better and better. And it was a long progression from, you know, starting at a low level at a, in club sailing to reaching a state and a national level and then competing internationally and um yeah it was something that i was very fortunate to stumble into where i had a you know i, I had a love for it i had a skill set that was relevant to it and i got a lot of reward for putting effort into it and um in the end you know there was always part of me that believed i could be very good at it and the progression was to go and compete internationally in Olympic classes, which is the pinnacle in in the sport of sailing, and I pursued that. And so whilst I was studying engineering, <clears throat> I was also training and competing internationally, and my engineering degree ended up getting spread out over eight years because I took a chunk of three years off to go to the Olympics in 96, and then I finished my degree and took another chunk of time off to train for and compete in the Games in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, the the plan was always that after the games in Sydney, I would go and um, get a job um, in you know in industry as an engineer um, and move you know move into the next phase of my life, which is what I did. So I mm-hmm. stepped out of the boat at the end of the Sydney games. I had a job that I'd been offered with an industrial consulting business and um, started that job early early the next year and. Mm-hmm. At that stage, my interest in investment really came from the sailing side of things because, uh, yeah, sailing in or that the discipline of sailing that I was involved in, which was sort of one design fleet racing, um, is a sport where you have a large field of competitors sailing identical equipment and to a large degree 
your success depends on making good risk return judgments on a continual basis. And, and, you know, having succeeded in sailing, I always felt like um, there was some parallel with investment markets. If you look at a, a chart of, if you look at a share price chart and you look at a wind direction chart, they look pretty similar. And, you know, in sailing, you succeed by positioning yourself in relation to what the wind direction is likely to do in the future and being more consistently right about that than your peers in a field where everyone else is trying to do the same thing. And I always felt like there, there had to be some sort of parallel and so I had this sort of interest in the back of my mind as to um, can the decision-making frameworks and the, the skill set that I had in sailing, which was ultimately to be very good at making relatively simple decisions but in a very complex, dynamic environment under a lot of pressure, um, be translated into into something in the investment space. Um, and, and I didn't, yeah, I didn't start off in in the investment world. I started off in investment consulting, and sorry, in industrial consulting. I worked for a very mm. interesting small business that did manufacturing performance improvement work with large manufacturing businesses, and. Um, yeah, it was a it was a really interesting and eye opening thing to do for a short period of time. Um, the company had a, 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 an almost absurd claim that it could improve um, the efficiency of any manufacturing uh, process in the world by somewhere between ten and forty percent within two to three months with no capex. And <laughs> and the firm had an extraordinary track record of being able to do that. And that might sound, you know, <laughs> ridiculous, but um, when I saw what, you know, what was possible inside these businesses, um, it sort of opened my mind to the ability to, um, or for, for, for pragmatic decision-making, to, to make a better world. And, yeah, the... the, the you know, the reality is in a, a lot of the manufacturing businesses, a, a lot of things are done um, less than optimally because it's easy to do them less than optimally. Um, and it's not that hard to speed things up if you can solve the problems that you run into when you speed things up. And that's what that, that firm did. And I had that experience within the first couple of months of working there of being a, you know, wet behind the ears, young consultant with very little skill or experience, but able to, you know, pragmatically solve a couple of problems and deliver, um, you know, whatever it was, you know, million dollars more output from a production line um, with no cost. And the problem with the, the, you know, the consulting business model is it's very hard to, ingrain the kind of um, skill set and approach that the consultants have within businesses. And what the experience left me with was a sort of perspective that um, we were doing something extraordinarily valuable that was of huge value to the shareholders of the company that we were working for. And as a firm for that engagement, 
you know, let's let's talk in round numbers. We might have been paid a hundred thousand mm. dollars. As a consultant, I was getting ten thousand dollars for that work. Um, the company's profit was going up by a million dollars, and on a capitalized basis, the shareholders were benefiting by ten million dollars. So I'm getting paid ten thousand dollars to deliver ten million dollars of value to shareholders through making some pretty simple logical decisions. And, and what's more, I'm trying to do it as an outsider consultant with a lot of resistance rather than as an insider or as a director and shareholder with real leverage to make things happen on a more permanent basis. And so I, I, I had this experience for a brief time in consulting and it left me thinking, actually, I'd really like to do this work, but in order to really do it properly, to, to achieve proper change and, and real benefit for companies and for the you know, for the, for the world more generally to operate more efficiently, I, I have to be a shareholder. And so I need to be on the investment mm. side of things. And my initial thinking was, right, I, you know, the, the natural place for that kind of philosophy and approach would be in private equity. But as a, you know, sailor and engineer, my sort of opportunities to get into that initially were pretty limited. But I had an opportunity um, offered to me to... Uh, join a Australian equities fund manager and that was my foot in the door into the investment industry and I did that and that's you know that's where I started and once I was there you know you know my, my investment sort of my real investment education started mm-hmm. um, and I didn't end up staying in that role for, for, for that long um, because um, I I mean, partly because of the firm that I was in, uh, you know, uh, the role wasn't right for me, um, but also because I felt like I needed a broad, broader education. It goes back to the, the way I think and don't remember things. I, I'm not going to act confidently unless I feel like I have a very good grasp of the, the big picture. I need to see most of the jigsaw puzzle in order to be able to make decisions, um, not, not an innately overconfident person. Um, and so I went and worked in investment banking and I worked at Rothschild for three years in a, in a range of roles, mostly in um, sort of corporate finance advisory work, um, but got in, exposed to the lending business and to the managed investment scheme business there. Uh, and then I left that and worked for Consolidated Press for three years in a sort of um, in a role that, you know, was pseudo-private equity sort of involved in managing the large portfolio of unlisted assets that Consolidated Press had at, at that point in time. Um, and then I had the opportunity to be involved in starting the business that, that I'm involved in today at, at NADOC. And that, at that point in time, you know, was an opportunity for me to bring together a lot of the sort of various um you know, skills and knowledge I'd built up over time and apply it to something that I was sort of passionate about. So, you know, to, to an opportunity set that I was absolutely convinced was going to last at least the rest of my investment career um, and, yeah, was doing something in the investment space that had, you know, to some degree a higher purpose to it. Mm-mm. There's so much that we need to pull on there so many anecdotes that you gave us that i feel are really interesting but can i ask why is it called nanook or nanook? Uh, it's very hard to find a, you know a short 
name for an investment management business that hasn't been used somewhere in the world <laughs> before. Um, agonisingly difficult thing to do. Um, we ended up with Nanook. Nanook's the Inuit word for polar bear uh, <laughs> because that, you know, was a, a, a symbol of, um, you know, environmental and particularly climate change issues that we thought was appropriate, appropriate mm-hmm. to our business. Okay, I've got a few things that I want to loop in and I'm going to do these out of order, so apologies in advance, no mate. Um, you mentioned before that as um, a consultant on the engineering side, you could see things that needed to be changed or could be changed, but from the outside it was pro- probably more difficult than if you actually had some keys, like a, a way to be you know, influencing the board or the senior engineer or something like that within the firm. One of the conversations that I had, and I had a debate with a guy called Scott Phillips, who was an old colleague of mine at The Motley Fool, um, and we debated about kind of like ESG, responsible investing, and all of this sort of stuff. And the perspective was that do you have more influence from the inside or from the outside? So what I mean by that is as a shareholder, say in public companies, a lot of the um frameworks that people adopt maybe if it's like through a passive fund or something like that they just exclusion they use those negative screens but his perspective was well maybe you should buy the ones that aren't necessarily air quotes um you know sustainable businesses and try to influence that business from you know from by being a shareholder and your experience was different to that because you weren't going at at it from that lens um, more from the efficiency perspective but if what would, in your opinion, what do you think is more impactful on changing these companies, whether it's culture, whether it's efficiency, whether it's climate? What do you think is more efficient from an investment, but also from a responsibility perspective? Depends on what problem you're trying to solve for. And you've, I mean, you've opened up a big can of worms there, or <laughs> several cans of worms. Uh Look, I think if you want to improve the performance of businesses, um, that's a management and culture I- issue. Um, th- that's where that kind of change has to come from to be real and sustainable. Uh, but, yeah, you, I mean, you've sort of asked about what's the role of shareholders in all of this and I, I guess I'd sort of could comment on a couple of things. One, uh, you know, shareholders in listed ma- listed markets, sort of buying and selling shares in the secondary market, um, have almost no influence. Uh, and that might, you know, surprise you to hear that coming from someone who runs a fund that other people point to as an ESG fund. But um, the reality is it doesn't. It doesn't change the you know, ownership structure, it doesn't change the, um, uh, you know, the board, it doesn't change the price in any meaningful way. Um, Maybe at the absolute margin, um, you know, you're affecting cost of capital, but in reality that's not to a degree that's likely to be making any difference to anyone. Um, So I don't think it's right to think that just by allocating capital to investment in the secondary market, you're making... A difference. Um, I do think that the collective voice of shareholders 
is very important. So mm -hmm. as a, you know, as a shareholder or as a fund manager, you know, representing the investments of our clients in companies, um, we still don't have much of a voice. Um, you know, we, we can, we, we, it would be wrong to think that our actions alone are likely to make any difference to management or board decisions at any of our investment investee companies. Um, but it, it's also extremely important that we do voice those things because it's the collective voice of investors that will be heard. Um, and we do see it as sort of important part of what we do that we articulate our views about issues related to sustainability and the environment and governance and so on um, clearly uh, in the expectation that others will be doing the same and when that message is being heard from a lot of people, it will start to have some impact. Um, mm. But the piece that I think is missing is that um, when you want to talk about environmental issues, there's, um, uh, th there's not enough discussion about the role of government. Um, and my view is very strongly that where or a lot of people are expecting investors and companies to solve problems that are really government problems to solve. Um, we have a, you know, we have an extraordinary economic system um, that is, you know, in aggregate, you know, very good at allocating resources well and, and coming up with the solutions we need in the economy. Um but it operates in a set of rules and what it will deliver is dictated by the rules and the guidelines and the pathway that are set by government. And for whatever reason, um, people don't seem to recognise that we have a, you know, a quite extraordinary financial system that exists in the structure it does because governments have defined very clearly how it should operate to deliver what you know, what governments wanted to do. And same can be said about the healthcare system. Um, they are extraordinarily different in structure to what they would be if they were largely unregulated and was left to the industries to decide how they operated. And in respect of environmental issues, the same applies. If governments are very clear about where society wants us to end up in terms of environmental outcomes and sets the rules for corporates to operate in, the corporates will do a great job of operating within that framework. Um, and ultimately, that's where our, our, you know, environmental problems will be solved. It's not going to be solved by the voice of shareholders or by good-thinking corporate citizens within companies making great decisions um, for the environment. Um, it's going to be solved by the government setting the right pathway and then companies being able to act clearly within that. And... I don't. I mean, if I think about our firm and where our potential impact is as a firm, um, it, it's in helping create um, better debate to have better decisions made by governments going forward. And, and being good at investing is our, um, you know, is the basis on which we'll be allowed to participate in those conversations. 
Um, mm. We're not going to change the world by the way we invest. We, we'll change. We, we will help change the world in a meaningful way if we're good at what we do. Um, you know, we build a, a you know a, a larger, more successful business, and we can start participating in a mean, meaningful way with the people who set government policy to, to make those kind of changes. And you sort of raise another issue, which is this issue of should you invest in bad companies and help change them or good companies? Um, and uh, that, uh, I guess it sort of opens up a couple of a couple of topics, right? One, one is what is ESG, right? What, what, what is ESG investment? How should it be done? Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is this challenge of a lot of ESG or responsible investment of trying to balance different outcomes alongside investment outcomes. And on the, yeah, on the first of those, I mean, we can talk more sort of about this if you want to, but for sure, for sure. There's, a, there's a massive problem in the investment industry today with ESG being used as a term um, that people often think has a single meaning and it doesn't. It's an acronym, an acronym that doesn't have a meaning at all um, and it's used by different people in different contexts to refer to a whole range of different um, approaches or facets of responsible investment or ESG integration. And there are sort of five or six or seven quite discrete elements of ESG or responsible investment that need to be thought of separately. Um, And that's a big problem for the industry at the moment. I think you're moving over a you know, at a slow cadence towards people starting to recognise that and to, you know, acknowledge that investing in bad companies and helping them make helping make them better is a valid strategy, just as investing in good companies um, for the benefits that might come from doing that is an equally valid strategy. They're totally incompatible, but nothing's wrong with either of them and they're both good, but you, you can't pretend they're the same thing or fall under the same bucket. Um, you can't measure them in the same way and, and people need to be really clear if they're talking about ESG about what is it they actually want. And then the, you know, the, the other issues around performance and whether there's a, a performance trade-off in achieving environmental and social outcomes. And um, absolutely there can be. Um, but look, the big problem is... Um, if you start to set multiple goals, you end up with suboptimal outcomes, right? It's almost by definition, right, that you can't be simultaneously optimising investment risk and return outcomes and optimising environmental and social outcomes. And to pretend to try and do to both of those things at the same time is nonsense, right? So, hmm. so, so I think there's... Um, there's nothing wrong with pursuing environmental and social outcomes and it's a perfectly valid thing for people to do if that's what their priority is, but it shouldn't be conflated with that is the right way to optimise for investment returns. Mm. It's, we did a survey not too long ago of our uh, community, Tom, and we found that many of our members and our listeners would be happy to forego 
alpha and even performance in order to achieve goals that they believe were responsible when it comes to investing. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and, and I think many of our clients f- feel that way. Um, uh, yeah, uh, th- th- look, there are there are lots of investors out there for whom ethical considerations are important and they want to know that their hard-earned capital is not being, you know, deployed for the use of companies doing things that they don't like. There's n- nothing wrong at all with that view. Um and there's also nothing wrong with the view that people want to see some or all of their capital deployed into things that are going to make a a difference from the world um, in, in a non-financial way. It doesn't surprise me at all. I think it's a trend that's only going to increase. Um, yeah, it's, mm. um, yeah it, 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 it's it is driving change in the you know in the investment industry that. That, that those demands do exist. I've got a, my other question was more along the lines of you mentioned government playing such an important role. I have this, I guess, um, concern that because terms for governments are four years, that they have an inability to make very hard decisions for 10 years or 20 years out into the future. Do, do you share that sentiment or I guess is that maybe a jumping off point for something that you think about from that perspective in terms of solving problems, um, but I guess having the myopic nature of voting today and politics today? Uh, look, I, 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 I don't think I'd be alone in saying that the um, calibre of political leaders in this country and in many Western countries um doesn't seem to be today what it has been, you know, historically, and that um, we haven't had a lot of leaders who've been willing to spend their political capital at risk of defeat in future elections for the sake of making good long-term decisions, and that's a problem for democracies around the world um, to deal with, and we can only hope that it's something of a cyclical thing that'll change um but but uh, yeah the, the, in relation to environmental issues I, th- I think that there's a different dynamic going on um the world's environmental issues are becoming much more obvious to people you know if you look around the world at what's happened this year it is profound you know worst drought in europe in 500 years 70% of China's rivers running dry and the worst drought they've had for 100 years. Uh, Sydney had its average annual rainfall in the first three months of this year. Um, I mean, you can you, there's a list as long as you are of, you know, things that are um, or, or, or of, you know, events that um, reflect the increasing energy in the you know, Earth's atmosphere and the volatility of meteorological events that scientists have been telling us is going to happen. And I think people are starting to appreciate that we are dangerously close to some pretty serious environmental tipping points, but perhaps more importantly that the geopolitical consequences of some of that stuff are profoundly bad. And 
um, yeah, we don't want to see China run out of water or India run out of water or Pakistan totally underwater. It's, it, there is no good to come of any of that. And what's happened politically is pretty interesting, that um, in the last, you know, four or five years, in a pretty large number of countries around the world, you've reached a point where um, the, the, the sort of climate and environmental issues are the number one or two issue for voters, in most cases the number one issue, um, and, and the political parties who've won elections are winning them on the basis of those of policies addressing those issues. And what's happening is every sort of electoral cycle, and I think you'll see it in this country, um, another three or four years of young voters are coming into the electoral pool um, and will overwhelmingly vote with that being their number one issue. And the political balance has tipped. The pendulum's swung past halfway now and it is not going to swing back. You know, the next federal election in Australia, you're going to have, you know, another three, you know, years of young voters eligible to vote for whom these environmental issues will be the number one issue and a government's not going to win power on a platform of going back on commitments. They're going to want stronger and stronger commitments. Um, and so I think, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're going in one direction and we're going to get, keep going increasingly fast. Um, mm. at, you know, at the moment, and the COP27 conference is on in Egypt at the moment, and it, you know, it's no surprise to me to have them coming out saying, well, one and a half degrees is just not going to happen, right? It, realistically, it's not going to happen. And people need to understand that, that the trajectory of where we're headed is a whole lot worse than that. And governments are going to start, you know, they've taken some extraordinary steps in Europe and in the US and even the commitments we've made in Australia are pretty extraordinary. But those commitments are going to get ratcheted in a really aggressive way in coming years as the, you know, environmental issues continue to worsen, as, you know, it becomes clear that the pathway that we're on has untenable geopolitical consequences for us. Mm. I mean, yeah. Okay. So there's so many different directions from here. Um, in, in respect to, I guess, you mentioned before, like gr greenwashing is the label that we give to a lot of investment products and consumer products and every product that seems to play on this label of do good for the world, buy this thing, pay a little bit more. Um, and a lot of us don't really know if it works or not, right? And I guess from an investment perspective, I have this view, and I don't know if you'd agree or disagree, and if you disagree, I'd love to know. Like Either way, I'd, I'd like to know. Um, that oftentimes, at least in investment markets, we see euphoria around some type of theme or whatever it may be. You know, like let's say a more dramatic theme might be cryptocurrency and the rise of Web3 or the 2000s.com boom and bust or cloud computing and and we see you know kind of like whipsaws around and you have these excesses and then you have these i guess kind of famines in investment markets if you like and out of that like we we on the way up we say how great is this on the way down we think it's the worst thing ever but oftentimes the result of those um swings is that you have really interesting things that might not have happened otherwise so where i'm going with this tom is you know 
as you, we mentioned before that maybe as individual investors and in just buying shares in quote unquote green companies or whatever might not have the impact from the from like a downstream pushing up to decision makers but i guess if we do have more of a focus on it as investors does that you know through osmosis eventually like creep into the i guess the investment side guys then we start to see more companies with shareholders who maybe they're passive like maybe they're just on the, the register and they don't think they have a say but it, you know it kind of st- tends to trickle in and seep into what the decision makers are thinking and i guess because you you run a fund right that takes into account all of these things and you say that investing is like a a kind of like the part of the the, the impact you're going to make but i feel like we should still be investing this way nonetheless because it at least philosophically if we do care about these things it would make sense i don't know if this is a question or it's a statement but do you get, do you kind of get where i'm going like it still like how do we still have an impact if we if we're investing in public equities uh, look I, I don't think there's any benefit to you or, or you know uh, or anyone else other than the people you buy the shares from, if you buy shares in companies, you know, involved in more sustainable activities um, at elevated prices that the companies are never going to, you know, d- deliver the profits to justify. Um, I don't think that does you any good. I don't think it helps helps the world. Um I mean, the kind of cycles that you're talking about are very important in what we do, and we've just been through one, you know, very extreme one in the last couple of years where um, changes made to government policy or expectations of changes to government policy and government support for a wide range of sustainable technology have led investors to pile into um, a, a relatively small set of stocks in niche parts of the economy and simply because of supply and demand for shares, their share prices end up rocketing up to very elevated levels and high valuations. And um, that's a good thing for the world because it attracts more capital into those areas and more investment in um, research and development and in capacity expansion and in the development of those technologies. Um, And in doing so, serves the purpose of the policy that caused that to to happen. Um, But, 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 yeah, buying those things at elevated prices doesn't doesn't help you or, or the world, I don't think. How, how about how about Tom? Say for example, like if we look at venture capital, right? There's yep. a lot of like, it's a you know that's a, a game of slogging, I guess. It's like you have you you're not about making like you know single runs. If we have a quick analogy, it's about hitting sixes and knowing that most of them are going to fail. But I guess the investment in those innovative businesses itself takes innovation forward, right? Even if it doesn't work, there's something that yep. we try and we give it a crack. And I guess, does that analogy apply to what we're talking about here, like decarbonisation and those types of things? 
Uh, it does, but buying, I mean, there's a difference between providing new capital via venture capital or private equity or through IPOs and capital raisings and, and, and not providing new capital to the companies just by buying shares from other people who own them today. There's, there's a distinct there's a distinct difference in terms of, you know, wh whether your money is new money being invested or whether you're just holding holding shares in you know, it, that someone else might have might have owned. Um, and, and yeah, if you you know if you want to deploy your money into new investment or new research and development, you probably need to do it through venture capital and private equity or IPOs and things like that, rather than rather than investing in the secondary market. Mm. Um, okay, so I'm hoping that, like, there's, I mean, there's so much I want to talk about here, but one of the things that you mentioned earlier on about sailing was that it's all about risk-adjusted decisions, basically. Like, you yep. you, go, you go this way, I, I do not know anything about sailing, Tom, so I'm just, just spitballing here, but, you know, you put the sails this way, you try and catch that breeze, there's this wave coming, whatever, it's just micro decisions after micro decisions that some of them are good some of them are bad do you think that do you think that investing in a sense in this way is best thought of as being a competitive pursuit or do you think it's more of an individual pursuit and this is a kind of like a bit, we could say both but there's so many ways that this answer can go because i can think of it from like a personal finance perspective and my sleep at night factor, but then I can also think of it as from a context of, well, I'm, I want to do better and that is what makes me a better investor over time. I mean, the, 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 um, the job that I do, um, professional funds management, is absolutely a competitive business. Um, you know, our value as an investment manager um, is determined by whether we um, do a better job than most of our competitors or, or not. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't. I don't think there's any debate about that. Um, but I'm not going to pretend to, you know, to tell people how they should invest. That is a personal um, thing, uh, and it depends what you're objectives are as you say i mean your your risk tolerance your investment outcome objectives your you know non-investment related objectives in, in relation to what you're doing on the investment side of things um and, and i don't yeah i don't i don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that mm. how about then um from your investment process perspective right where you make a decision between what is a good investment and what is a company that you want to be involved in? Um, we chatted briefly off air about maybe an example that you had um, about a, companies that might illustrate the way you think about these competing problems of, I want to invest in a way that's good for society, good for the environment, and I want to drive investment returns for my clients. I, I feel like an example can illustrate how those two competing priorities balance. Yeah, I mean, let me talk about what we do as a firm because I think that might help understand mm. yeah, how, how I think about it and how we go about it. So we started Nano 13 years ago because we thought there was likely to be an enduring 
um, investment opportunity set coming out of um, what was going on globally in terms of um, ongoing population and economic growth around the world and a set of pretty evident environmental issues and environmental constraints, climate change being the big one but not the only one. And um, very simply, our thesis has always been um, you can't reconcile those two things with the current sort of economic model globally, that, that, that something has to change in a, or a lot has to change over coming decades um, because we can't continue to have population and economic growth uh, and to continue to have worsening environmental issues. Something's going to break. And, you know, irrespective of how and when it breaks um, and how that change happens, the investment implications of that are going to be profound. And you're starting to see that already. You've seen a lot of change in the global economy over the last sort of decade, and you're going to see orders of magnitude more over the next couple of the same nature. And those are important things for investors um, because a lot of companies are going to have to change in a way that's probably not going to be helpful to their profitability and their value. And there's going to be a smaller subset of companies that are on the right side of those transitions. And our view's always been that if we could invest successfully within that opportunity set, that we have a very good chance of delivering good investment outcomes for our clients. And that's the primary focus of our business, delivering good investment outcomes um, from what we think will be uh, an enduring opportunity set that, uh, you know, has a set of characteristics that lend themselves to the kind of investment that we do, fundamental research-based valuation-focused investment and that we'll continue to have a sort of stream of these opportunities for, for a long period of time. Um, it's an adjunct to all of that that we are investing in companies that are um, contributing positively towards improving global sustainability and that's a feature of what we do that some of our clients think is important. Not all of them, you know, a portfolio in the first instance should deliver some alpha and should have a set of holdings that mean that the diversification benefits for our clients are good and that's reason enough to use a global equity fund but we're not the only ones who can provide those features to clients. Um, but, but, you know, for a lot of our clients, they're also interested in knowing that some of their money is being invested in companies that are doing things that are going to make the the world a, a better world. We're not necessarily changing the world by making those investments, but people, you know, might feel better, might sleep better at night, whatever, because of um, because of that. But but yeah, I mean, going back to what we do, um, you know, we're an investment firm that exists on the basis of an investment thesis, and what we do is trying to make good investment returns. Um, for our clients and there's not a trade-off between um, trying to invest in companies that are doing more good or less good and trading that off against better investment return or worse investment return. Um, What we do is 
we define the set of companies that we can invest in um, around a set of industries and technologies that we think are contributing positively to improving sustainability. Mostly really obvious things that fit that description, renewable energy, energy storage, grid technologies, energy efficiency solutions, um, sustainable transport solutions, electric vehicles, rail transport, things like waste management, recycling, water treatment, water um, efficiency, the list goes on. So we've got a, a list of all these industries. And if companies are materially involved in those areas um, and, and not doing things that are badly misaligned with those areas, um, they'll be in our investment universe. And given that investment universe, which is now about 15% of the broader global market, um, our job within that is to pick a portfolio that we think will deliver good risk-adjusted relative returns. And, and we don't try and produce a portfolio from that set of opportunities that is more impactful or more sustainable or has better ESG scores or anything like that. Our investment decisions are based around our assessment of the you know, relative return potential, the risk-adjusted return potential of, of each of those stocks. We buy a stock where we you know, think that it's going to generate alpha um, uh, sufficient to justify the risk we're taking um, and we'll sell something when we've got a better opportunity to replace it or that, that potential no longer exists. Um, and it's not muddied by trying to have a set of dual objectives of, well, you know, th this solar stock's more impactful than this waste management business and, and therefore we're going to buy the, the solar stock over, over that. If the return potential of the waste management, you know, stock or, or you know, is better and better suited to the portfolio at that point in time, then that's the investment decision we'll make. Um, and, and I think keeping it simple from our perspective like that um, is, is very important. Um, because, it, yeah, if you start to try and solve for two problems at once, you're going to start investing in things that aren't the right investment to make if you want to achieve good investment outcomes. So but just to summarise that, Tom, so you're putting basically, you've got your global universe and you put the, like the environmental sustainable sustainability type buckets in front of the, the, the fundamental. Yeah, well, yes, we, we, we invest exclusively from within a self-selected investment universe that's been positively and negatively screened to only include companies that are materially involved in um, sustainable technology and industries um, and doesn't include companies that are you know, involved to any large degree in areas that are ethically or environmentally problematic. Um, and, and from within that, we construct a portfolio based on investment merit. So um, I'm just going to pull out an example from an article that I read a while ago, which was Dakin. And that in that article uh, in the AFR, this is Dakin, the air conditioner for anyone, like the air conditioning company for anyone that's playing along at home. Um, and in that, it was mentioned that the company also has like a defence element to it. How, yeah. how do you think about companies that, say, make in environmentally efficient products, in this case, an air conditioner, but also have some other type of business? Like there's an example in Australia with like Woolworths that also used to have a pokies and hotels business. And there are numerous examples of companies that do multiple different things. How do you 
How do you think about those businesses and whether they're in that universe or not? We do. I mean, we try and be pragmatic about it, and we also uh, try and um, accommodate the wishes of our clients. Because at the end of the day, you know, what we do is uh, provide a service to our clients. Um, so, yeah, Daikin, you know, would be eligible for our investment universe because we um, uh, we, we include companies who are producing energy efficient heating ventilation and air conditioning systems and that's what they do um but as well as that positive screen we also have a negative screen which um excludes companies who are involved in areas that are poorly aligned with our environmental focus so companies involved in um, oil and gas exploration and production in coal-fired power generation in um, you know palm oil production in in areas that are not a good fit with our mandate as well as a series of areas of ethical concern because we recognize a number of our investors um, are sort of ethical investors and want, want to use the product because it's because our areas of focus by and large don't overlap with things like defence products or gambling or um, tobacco and alcohol and that's formalised in this exclusion framework that says we're not going to invest in companies who have any involvement in producing um, sort of weapons and combat equipment and uh, unfortunately Daikin you know quite unusually has a very small division that's only about a percent of its revenue that produces missile systems for the Japanese Department of Defence. And we've got a 0% threshold, and that means that we've got to exclude it. It's a black and white decision. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about that one is it's still held by a lot of ESG-type funds who purportedly have um, restrictions on those kind of things, uh, I think because it's not... Re you, know, it's, you have to read the detail of the annual report or have good ESG data... Um, in order to know that it even has that business, it's not um, it's not made obvious. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, see, I didn't know that either. Um, reading um, that write up in the AFR, but that that caught me off guard. So I didn't uh, I didn't know that. Um, just in the interest of time, uh, maybe I, I might because you're very uniquely placed as an engineer, but also as a very experienced investor. Maybe this is a quick one for you to answer. And it's for myself and anyone else that is interested in learning more about this uh, as like a sustainable investing, you know, emphasis and that's what we want to focus on. Um, what, I guess there's multiple questions in this, but how, do, how can we, I guess, improve our knowledge of what is you know, the, the, what are the key factors that we should be looking at? You know, there's companies that report emissions targets, there's companies that report scope one, two, three, you know, all these different things. I guess what are the things that you have, or even resources, Tom, like even, you know, go and read this or, or look at that. Um, anything that you can leave us with that might help us um, form a better view of how to understand companies and their environmental impact um, I think that'll be really valuable, not just to myself, but many thousands of listeners who tune in. Um, look, as I said to you earlier, I, I, I think the whole sort of 
ESG and responsible investment landscape still very confused. Um, mm. And I don't think there are great resources out there that um, are helping people um, clarify in their own mind what it is they're trying to do. But that's what I'd encourage people to do, to, to, to think deeply about what it is that you're actually trying to um, achieve and you know, carbon emissions is an interesting um, interesting example of that. I mean, we run a you know, sustainably themed investment fund, but the emissions intensity of our portfolio isn't that different to the broader market. Um, and it's a lot higher than most low carbon funds, which do something quite different. And um, that's because um, emissions intensity is measured as scope one and scope two emissions and not scope three and uh, scope four uh, mm -hmm. avoided emissions. Um, and, yeah, because uh, low carbon investments, so investing in companies with inherently low carbon footprints um, is a completely different endeavour to investing in um, in decarbonisation solutions. So if you want to invest in a low carbon portfolio, which is a perfectly valid thing to do and there's lots of good reasons to do that um, and it's the strategy that's sort of the low hanging fruit and being adopted by a lot of our large uh, institutional investors in Australia, um, that will lead you to invest in large financials, technologies and healthcare stocks, which are companies with inherently low carbon mm. prints per unit of revenue. Um, and the, the, I guess, carbon emission profile of those businesses is um, orders of magnitude lower than making lithium batteries or manufacturing electric vehicles or building wind turbines or deploying solar panels or... Um, doing waste management um, or recycling um, industrial activities that use energy and have have a footprint. Um, and, yeah, the, 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 I think the important thing for people is to get clear in your, your own mind, are you, you know, are you just trying to invest ethically and not invest in companies doing particular things that in your value set are unacceptable? Are you trying to invest in a low carbon manner, which is going to lead you, as I said, to invest in financials, healthcare and tech companies, which may not be a particularly different investment portfolio to not doing that. Um, uh, are you trying to invest in an activist manner where you're buying bad companies and exercising your position as a shareholder or with a manager who's doing that for you to see those change in a way that's positive? Are they doing that you know, for environmental and social reasons or are they doing that because it's a lever to generate alpha, the, the, you know, the different variations of, of that approach? Um, are, are you looking for, you know, investments in um, areas like we focus on, you know, decarbonisation and other environmental solutions that are well aligned with or contributing to improving global sustainability? Are you looking for true impact investing where you can measure social and environmental outcomes? These are all distinctly different things and that's where people really have to be, you know, clear in their own minds because mm. if you know that, then it's not actually that hard to work out what you, know, what you can and can't or should and shouldn't be investing in. And there are 
good investments in all of those areas. Um, and I, look, I haven't even touched on ESG and ESG integration because that's another, you know, another, another bucket entirely. Mm. You know, also something that's a um, meritorious thing to be doing and, um, uh, you know, can confer investment benefits, but it's not the same thing as the, you know, other aspects that I, I've just described. Mm. I would encourage anyone that's listening um, or watching to just try and understand at the very basic level the difference between scope one, two, three, and four emissions and just understand how those are reported because, as Tom's just said, you can end up with financials, tech, and healthcare, but does that address the full ecosystem in which that company operates or the industry in which that company Yeah, Yeah, at a simpler level, is that is that... Sorry, go on. You know, is that leading you to invest in the things that you actually want to be invested in? Um, mm. You know, is it because it'll preclude you from investing in a wind turbine manufacturer who has an mm. industrial business? Mm. And I think that's the that's the key. A lot of people are kind of like you said. There's a lot of misunderstanding, or just people that haven't carefully thought, not just as you said from their perspective, but also understanding the, the kind of the different ways we are trying to measure industries and companies and so on and so forth. Um, and once you have the, just even a basic understanding, you can make a more informed and deliberate decision there around who you invest with or what you invest in. Um, mate, I might just ask one final question, which is, um, this is more of a philosophical thing and it doesn't have to be related in any way to what we just spoke about, but could be. Um, it's more of a question to try and tease out something that you believe that maybe most people might disagree with you on or have not a thought about. So what's one thing that you believe about investing, about business, could even be about life itself, that few people would agree with you on? I've probably given you a few already in this. <laughs> no, I've given us plenty. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, look, I mean, in a general sense, I, I've always believed that um, it's possible to exceed to succeed in in you know in business or in other facets of life um, in an honourable way um, you know by being um, you know honourable and respectful and um, fair to the people you're dealing with mm. and, and that's not I don't think that's a common trait amongst our you know business leaders, but I, I do believe that to be the case. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, if I look back to my sailing career, I, it's one of the things I'm most proud of that we, I think, you know, got to the end of that with the respect of our competitors and, um, you know, we got a result, but we did it in the in the right way without, you know, bending the rules or stretching the truth or treating people in an unfair way and I'd, I'd like to you know continue mm. continue that through my business career um yeah on the investment side it's interesting i you know i'm not uh educated in the same way that a lot of people involved in the industry are i didn't study accounting or commerce or economics um uh, you know I, I trained as an engineer and i have a probably a different way of thinking about a lot of things um, much of which has just been born from experience uh, over time and a uh, curiosity about understanding how the world works. Um, and, 
Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things in the investment um, community that are discussed as if they're known or they're black and white, you know, or, or there's a solid academic foundation to to what or to understanding investment markets and what people are doing in investment markets. And the reality is a lot of, you know, what is held out as the academic truth is stuff that's been, you know, developed in the last few decades. It's not, um, mm. uh, you know, it's not an area like engineering and science where, um, you know, the basic laws of physics have been very well understood for hundreds of years. Um, you're dealing with markets and, you um, the behaviour of participants in markets and they're not, you know, easily analysed in such a black and white black and white way. And I mean, even when you hear about things like valuation, people talk about valuation as if it's a, a, as if it's a science. And, um, you know, my observation over time, having worked in different environments in quite different contexts, um, you know, gives me an understanding that valuation is an opinion. It's not a fact. And uh, different people will rightly have different opinions about valuation of the same asset at any point in time. And um, that's, I don't, you know, things like that. I don't think are commonly held beliefs within the investment world. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, I think I said it earlier on, I think, you know, part of this game is being true to yourself and um, developing your own set of beliefs because there's a lot of um, different ways that you can be successful in investment markets. There are a lot of different strategies that will deliver good investment outcomes if they're executed well and there's not a right or wrong way of, of doing that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we do something that we uh, believe in and think is effective in the um, or effective to deliver the outcomes we're trying to achieve in the in the area that we're investing, um, but there are certainly other ways of going about it, um, uh, other styles, other approaches that could be equally successful at different different points in time. I like it. I particularly liked your phrase that valuation is an opinion, not a fact. I think that's a really succinct way to to answer that. Um, Tom, I really appreciate you taking some time out to join me on the show, mate. Um, if anyone that wants to learn more, they can head to the Nook website. There'll be links in the show notes. Yeah, and I just uh, I appreciate it. We covered a lot of ground and we kind of went in every direction at different at every moment. So um, you handled it really well. And uh, thanks for sharing some of your wisdom. Yeah, no problem, Arne. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.